0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Well, welcome everyone to M Pavilion on this beautiful Thursday evening. Um, Thank you City of Melbourne for hosting this event and I really enjoyed my walk here from Flinders Street Station and um, the beautiful planter boxes on the way and I was hurrying as I usually am, and was able to pick some time and inhale the fragrance of it and think, thank you City of Melbourne for helping me to establish a better relationship with time in my life, so (laughs) thank you. So um, we're here to discuss um, Living Melbourne and um, urban resilience, and with me this evening, um, so first we'll do an acknowledgement of country, so we'd like to acknowledge the Yellowcote Wheelam as traditional owners. Of this land, um, the people of the River Camp, and um, the Elakut Willem are part of the Boon Wurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. And we pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and future. So with me this evening is Dr. Claire Farrell. Claire is a senior lecturer at the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And Claire's research focus is on green infrastructure to improve livability in cities. And as a plant scientist, much of her research is focused on understanding plant tolerances to improve survival and stormwater retention in green roofs, walls and urban plantings. And the Woody Meadow Project is um, one of Claire's key research projects and she's going to be talking about that this evening, which is really exciting. And Dr Nick Soames is a director of ecodynamics and Nick's led the rebranding of the Dynamics group into a nursery social enterprise and he has a 30-year career in environmental and landscape industries and he's very passionate about greening. Um, and my name is Emma Price and I am the coordinator of a really exciting project in Melbourne's West called Greening the Pipeline and I have a background in um, arts and environmental education And I'm also a civil and infrastructure engineer, just to kind of balance those two things out. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, I'll be talking a little bit about Greening the Pipeline um, as we move into the case studies part of our talk. And so, I'm also the co-chair of an initiative called Greening the West. And that's where my work aligns with Living Melbourne. So, um, I've been asked to present on Living Melbourne this evening um, by... Martin Hardigan who's really spearheaded that work through the Nature Conservancy and um, Martin had a, a slightly better offer to present at a tree conference in New York this week. So um, I, I offered to go there instead of him but um, I've got this gig with you lovely people tonight so <laughs> so if you don't mind I'll be referring to some of my notes as we talk about um, that um, has been passed on to me. Great, so the, the key questions that we're going to be discussing tonight is how do we build resilience through nature. And what is our role both us all up here and your role and our role collectively in implementing nature-based solutions for a more livable and sustainable Melbourne. And we're intending that this conversation is going to be provocative, honest, and discuss some of the really practical on-the-ground challenges to implementing urban greening. So, what is living Melbourne? So, who here Um, knows or has heard of Living Melbourne? Anyone? A few people? Okay, great. So Living Melbourne is an innovative nature-based approach to protecting and enhancing ecosystem services and biodiversity in cities. It's our metropolitan forest strategy and it's a bold new strategy, was just released last year, for a greener, more livable Melbourne into the future. And it presents a vision of international significance for its massive scale, its outstanding collaboration and its use of new and innovative mapping technology. And so I think just the fact that um, Martin is over in New York at the moment presenting on Living Melbourne is a really great indicator that this is a really global initiative. And um, it's a really fantastic achievement for Melbourne to have the collaboration that it has behind it. Um, So Living Melbourne seeks to connect, extend and enhance urban greening across the metropolitan area and it's been developed by Resilient Melbourne in partnership with the Nature Conservancy and it unites many different organisations. So the background to this is that the Rockefeller Foundation, which is a philanthropic organisation, provided seed funding to develop a global network of cities to build urban resilience. So it's called the 100 Resilient Cities. And so City of Melbourne applied to become part of this initiative. And um, that's how the um, Resilient Melbourne team is partly funded at City of Melbourne. Um, And so... This can so part of the um, so I guess I'll, I'll go into what we define urban resilience as. So who kind of here understands what we need by urban resilience? So it's got kind of a lot of, you know, we we often describe resilience both in really personal terms and then in really um, kind of urban and global terms as well. So the way that um, We're talking about it. It's it's defined as the capacity of individuals, institutions, businesses and systems within a city to adapt, survive and thrive no matter what kind of chronic stresses and acute shocks they experience. So when we talk about those chronic stresses and acute shocks, we can all think of the fires that have just um, impacted um, our communities. I'm sure we all know somebody if we haven't even been directly impacted by that and how that affects... um, how that affects um, us personally and then on, on a um, I- on an environmental kind of level so this um, city of Melbourne and resilient Melbourne um, developed living Melbourne through the city of Mel- through the, the resilient Melbourne collaborative so um, city of Melbourne, jurisdiction doesn't extend across all of metropolitan Melbourne, of course, so um, uh, they recognise that a large challenge to this um, building urban resilience is about bringing together and uniting um, all the different local government areas, the different state agencies that are caretakers of public land, so um, people like VicRoads and Delp and all that kind of other land that's not within local government areas, and also um, it also touches on the our private realm as well so we know that um, particularly in our suburbs where we used to have big leafy backyards um, we're seeing a lot more urban densification so um, smaller houses on or larger houses on um, smaller blocks um, and so less green space in that private realm as well which all impacts on our um, green living space. So the key drivers are healthy people, abundant nature and natural infrastructure. Now how are we doing this work? So one of the key ways that we're gonna be discussing today is um, about increasing tree planting, increasing canopy cover, and just increasing greening in general. So I'm going to hand over to Nick now to talk about the role that Greening the West is playing in. Urban greening and in the work that Ecodynamics is doing. Thanks, Nick.
2: Thank you, Emma, and thank you everyone for for coming. Um, it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to talk about really important things in a in a beautiful location, and you've all got the benefit of the beautiful view behind us, which is great. Um, I brought along a friend from our nursery, um, and and when we talk about urban resilience, I think holding up little trees like this is 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 really important. Um, what I've got here is probably a solution to, to many of our urban resilience problems. This is a, a really nice, neat bit of technology that um, if we plant it and nurture it, it'll provide us with a, with a pile of services over, over a long period of time. If you, look, you look behind us and some of its older relatives have probably been there for 50 plus years and I checked on the Melbourne um, City Council website, and most of the trees that we see out there have got another thirty or forty years, according to their to their tree map. So they're really simple, long-lived, amazing assets. So w- we can use trees, and greening the West is all about using trees to make our our, our cities more livable. And we we're using them because of the health and well-being outcomes that that they're going to deliver. Um, they're gonna, they improve our uh, our air quality. Um, they provide green space. They give stuff for kids to climb. They give stuff for adults to climb. They do really really good stuff that gets you out uh, out in into the outdoors. They create habitat and provide other environmental services. They they capture and intercept rainfall. They percolate it into the ground, um, and really importantly, they capture and store carbon dioxide. And there is an economic outcome from from the revegetation that we do, um, they'll they'll cool our suburbs, which means we're expending less money and energy on cooling. They'll add to the value of the neighbourhoods within within which we all live. Um, I read it recently, and I, I'm going to keep saying it till le- everyone that ever that I that I talk to is sick of it. They are the only viable carbon capture and storage technology that we currently have that can deliver at scale. So. It would be very nice if our politicians in invested billions into these things uh, because we would actually go a long way down the path that we'd like to go to with carbon capture and storage. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to think that for a less than $20 investment, we can put something in the environment that will last 100 years and um, can be our gift and legacy to, to future generations. They're, they really are amazing things and we, you know, it's a shame they're not patented because I'm sure we'd use more of them um So tonight I'm talking about the case study of um, delivering trees to um, achieve health, environmental and, and uh, environmental outcomes. This is really about what living Melbourne's about, and I think Greening the West is a really good model of, what living, uh, of, of of what we can achieve with this the living Melbourne Melbourne strategy. So Greening the West is a program that's based in the west of Melbourne. Um, it's a vision of creating sustainable, viable and, and, and healthy, environments for people to live in. Um, it, was, it was founded in, in 2010 um, and it spent the last 10 years building a coalition of 23 plus partners of state and local government authorities, industries involved, not for profit sector. It's got really fantastic engagement of the community and that's been a real driver of, of how they've put it together. And it was a key partner in the in the development of the Living Melbourne strategy. So where did Greening the West come from? So in the impetus of this program was that the West of Melbourne has a combination of poor health and environmental outcomes um, and that, you know, if you lack good, good quality open spaces, people are less likely to get out and engage with them, less likely to exercise and you generate a series of chronic health problems and the West unfortunately is, a, is leading a Greater Melbourne in, in that area. Um, the West has also got some geographic challenges. It, it historically is an area of grassland, and as we urbanise that, we don't have a, have a tree canopy to fit in and under. Um, it, it's you know, I work in the West, it's a harsh establishment to establish landscapes in, so getting trees to grow in the West um, is, is a real challenge. And to maintain ho- high quality open spaces is also a challenge out there. So these are the, some of the challenges they had to overcome. Um, on top of that, we have the increasing um, occurrence of extreme heat events. So in 2009, 10 years ago, we, we experienced the Black Saturday tragedy. And I think it's well known that 170 people lost their lives in that, in that c- catastrophic fire. A- and they were uh, the culmination of that very long, hot summer that I'm, that I'm sure we can all remember. But what's not as widely known or reported, that across that, in the lead-up to those fires, 370 people have been identified as dying from extreme heat conditions. So the the heat that we're talking about has real impacts on our community. It's not just having to run the air conditioner for a bit longer. It, it seriously impacts heat, people's health and shortens their lives. And we know that we're going to be exposed to more heat uh, and extreme heat days going into the future. So the time was to act was was back in 2010, and and Greening the West came together as a coalition to look at what they could do. One of the early bits of work they did, which is um, I only looked at it for the first time in the last week, but it, it, you, you dig into where these things come from, it's, it's amazing to see what they've done. But they looked at the tree cover across Melbourne. The tree cover in the six municipalities that make up the west of Melbourne is in the order of 6 or 7%. You, you Compare that to a national average of 39% and probably even higher averages out, out in the east of Melbourne. You're starting with a very low base of tree cover if you're trying to start a, 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 um, a tree planting program. So they set some pretty audacious goals of um, having a 50%, doubling the, the tree cover by, by 2050 and increasing um, public open space by 25% 20, by 2050 and working together as a community to do that. Um, the other goals that they looked at, um, and we're going to focus on the tree stuff today, but the other stuff they looked at was looking at the health and well-being of the, of the community increasing interaction with their open space. Um, showcasing the economic value of, of green urban space to make the community and, and regulators value it. Um, advocacy in the green open spaces and probably greening the pipeline was probably assisted by, by, by that advocacy. And then certainly in greening the pipeline, which we'll get to later, is maximising alternative water supplies and to, to generate um, urban greening opportunities and support. them. that's a really big focus at City West Water at the moment is to be commending. Um, so one of the great successes of Greening the West is they've got stuff done. Um, they've put um, over a million trees in the ground um, since 2010. Um, they were fortunate in the federal government in 2015 gave them $5 million to put a million trees in the ground but that's easy to say. You've got the money, go and do it. To actually achieve it is, is a fantastic outcome. Um, I'm trying to find homes for... 100,000 trees in bushfire areas at the moment and you'd be surprised how difficult it is to give trees away um, at the moment. So to find homes for a million um, in, in a relatively small area is a really, a really fantastic outcome. The other thing they did, it wasn't just in plantations at a distance from the community, it was in the community with the community actively participating and the community being engaged in it all the way through. Um, so we've, we've built a bank of trees and we've built a bank of community goodwill. Which is which is another really good thing which I think is will help with their ongoing success of the program and you can you drive around in the West now and you start to see trees where you didn't and it's really starting to have an impact so stuff that was planted that big three or four years ago is now this 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 big or, or taller it's really having um, a big a big impact um, so greening the West has moved on since finishing its tree planting program or uh, well the million tree in 2019 they're now, doing a refresh and looking at where they go and they've got setting targets of trees into um, into the lot scales as opposed to public open space so getting them into into people's front and back gardens and and working to see how they can keep driving that forward um, a little bit about why economics is involved and for us it's been a, a fairly long long journey um, we've been involved with the program in the 20 million trees we're a supplier of plants, we supplied mulch and we even helped prepare some of their sites. Um, so we've we've been involved in the in, in the program all the way all the way through as one of a, of a whole diverse group of suppliers in the West. Um, we, we really as a business see this is is really important to our business. Um, we've been in business for 30 years. The business started as an opportunity for 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 three blokes to to get a job and a fundamental drive for the business across that 30 years has been giving other people jobs to the point now we've got 150 other people having jobs uh, and that's a really big driver of, of what we've done and as we've grown over those 30 years we've really understood that we've got a responsibility to put back into the community and the environment um, you know, through our corporate social responsibility uh, objectives and, and, and program and the Greening the West aligned perfectly. We're a commercial landscaping business. We work in large scale Delivery of landscapes to work with someone like Greening the West um, was a really a really good opportunity to align with somebody that's that's doing what is in our industry. We can we can bring stuff to the table that will help them, um, and we've and we know that we're going to continue to do good to good to good work in the future. So we're working with them to hopefully deliver this year 10,000 trees into their program and and really keep that program rolling um, uh, as we go and to grow it. To grow it into the future um so economics relationship with uh greening the west is growing i think greening the west is really supporting the melbourne livability. so i'll bring you back to our to our tree it's not hard it's not really hard what we have to do but if we can keep growing and installing and nurturing these things we we really will go a long way down the path of, of of delivering um De- delivering the, the resilience that Melbourne needs. Um, I'm going to throw to um, Claire now because we're going to um, talk about what's changing in our environment and what's making life harder to deliver these. So we're going to... I think now we're going to have a go at a, um, one of the unicorns, aren't we? And <laughs> sacred cows of, of landscaping and we're going um, to see what see what impact climate's going to have on, our, on, on where we go over the next 15, 20, 50 years. Yeah.
3: So I think I'll ask you all a question. Do any of you grow plants? Do any of you have a plant in your house, in your garden, in your parents' garden, in your friends' garden? And what do you have to give them? Pretty basic, but (laughs) what do you have to give them? Water. And what was our November, December like this year? Did it rain? What was last February like? Did it rain? No, it was crazy. We had less than two millimeters of rainfall in a February. And it wasn't a February like this February where it's cold and kind of autumny. It was hot and dry. And so if you're a plant and you've been planted out as a beautiful baby like this and you're not accessing rainfall, what happens to you? <laughs> you die. <laughs> So I spent most of my life talking about why plants die. It's kind of what I do. Um, And academically, it's really interesting. But we want plants to live. We want plants to thrive. If we want livable cities, we need green plants everywhere. We need to feel shaded. We need to see flowers. We need to feel delight. And I guess the elephant in the room is how we go about choosing that plant. If we're planting a garden like this and we know we can put a sprinkler on them, It's not so hard. We've got a big palette of choices. But for the landscapes out greening the west and greening the pipeline where we don't have access to a lot of water naturally, how do we select those plants? And how do we select those plants that will thrive now and in our climate in 20 and 50 years time? So I'll ask you, do any of you have any ideas how we do that? So native plants? Yeah, sure. Native plants, they come from the, the land that we're planting, they'll be better, sure. How else? Well I'll probably take the ones that are a little bit north from here, because if it's gonna get cold or hotter, they'll
4: probably strive a
3: little bit better. Now that is brilliant. Did everybody hear that? All right. So this lady suggested in my view (laughs) quite cleverly, that we wouldn't be planting the plants that come from Melbourne for a Melbourne in 20 years time, we'll be planting the plants that come from a drier climate than Melbourne for 20 years time. Do any of you disagree with that? And if you do, speak up because that's exciting. (laughs)
5: If we don't plant the plants that live here, will they go extinct because we're not actively um, propagating them?
1: I
2: I think in climate change, there's going to be winners and losers. And there are plenty of plants that are at the limit of their range here and want to live further south than here. And I I, I looked at something today. There's, There's models that are predicting that in 20 Uh, 90, Melbourne will be 3.8 degrees warmer than it is now. What's the climate currently in Australia replaced that's 3.8 degrees warmer than Melbourne? Throw throw, throw something at me. Dubbo. Yeah. So, I don't think I've ever been to Dubbo, but I've been out that way, and it doesn't look anything like this. Uh, So, we are going to lose plants. And so yes, I think the unfortunate answer is that things will become extinct and our challenge is to come up with, adapt very quickly with plant pallets that can tolerate what what we've got here.
3: The other thing with that that can be exciting though is you can think about analogues in the urban environment that replace those habitats that we're losing and those plants. So for some of my work on green roofs for example, It's a bit like a rocky outcrop. So we can think about plants that come from those habitats throughout Victoria, and they might be becoming extinct from grazing or from the shifting climate, and we can give them a new home on top of green roofs. Now, if you're a conservationist, you might have issues with that because they're not in their native populations anymore, but it depends what we're trying to achieve with plants in the landscapes. Now, the man over there... (laughs) you want to...? Yeah.
6: I I come up with the alternative solutions. So one thing I had this morning was um, the windows in our skyscrapers. You could actually use the space in between them as a terrarium so it conserves the water inside, acts as a shading feature and also as an aesthetic one as well. But the other thing is in our artificial environment, we are creating natural shade with these buildings, apart from all these reflective windows. So in effect, they can operate as a way to combat... Uh, the, the great heat or direct sun, sunlight to protect plants as well. So we, we can work synergistically with the artificial environment this way. So there's, there's things we can do. Yeah, but anyway.
3: <laughs> no, that's a good point. And it speaks to biomimicry, doesn't it? So some of you in the audience are probably familiar with that. But, you know, the idea that we build buildings to reflect natural structures. I guess... Your point about shade is a big one, and that's our other issue with plant selection in cities. It's not just hot and dry places, it's also shady and dark places, You know, often beyond the limits for plants to grow. But in those situations, our biggest um, issue, apart from no light, is wind. So places like Docklands, not necessarily ideal for trees and plants either. Thanks,
1: Claire. So, I think the the thing with, um, I guess, that thing of abundant um, nature and resilient landscapes, in my work I think of... Um, so, I work in local government. I work at Wyndham City Council, which is in the west of Melbourne. And so, when um, I'm talking to the parks guys who do all the maintenance work, resilience also is about our ability to look after... Plant so for Wyndham, it's a really um, massive growing um, area. It's one of the fastest growing areas in Australia, and council gets handed almost a hundred hectares of open space some years, which is um, puts a, bu- a burden on our parks and and um, our parks maintenance teams to have to um, look after those spaces. So um, when we're Choosing plants, we're also choosing ones that are going to be easy to maintain and look after. And I think that's one of the um, key interests in the Woody Meadow project that um, Claire's been um, doing. So we're about to enter into a a partnership with Claire on um, Woody Meadows along with other um, organisations and uh, local government agencies in um, Melbourne. And so... Would you like to talk a bit about that about that kind of resilient um landscape
3: sure um so the woody meadow project hands up if you've ever heard about it oh cool (laughs) you must watch gardening australia but um the woody meadow project so those of you that know about plants go how can you have a woody meadow the two words don't go together because meadows have to be herbaceous plants don't they that's the definition of a meadow it's Plants like grasses and low-flowering annuals. So the Woody Meadow is making an Australian example of that. So partly for a sense of place, but also to reduce maintenance inputs. So in temperate parts of the world and some Mediterranean places, they'll grow meadows for low-maintenance landscapes that they'll mow annually. So they'll mow them, then there'll be nothing there for a few months over winter until spring comes, and they'll germinate and grow again. Now, if we had that in Melbourne, it would be pretty boring at large-scale landscapes because we just have bare dirt for a lot of our year. And really, winter's not our stressful time, is it? It's summer. And so we'd want plants in our summer for the cooling, for the livability, and all of those things. So the Woody Meadow Project's about using shrubs in a meadow-style landscape that's low maintenance. So what we're trying to create is a planting similar to what we have behind us in those flowering perennial beds, but is low maintenance. So if any of you garden, you would know that the beds behind me need lots of irrigation, they need lots of fertiliser, they need lots of weeding, they need lots of pruning. So they're not low maintenance at all, they're really high-end horticulture. With the Woody Meadow, we plant it at really high density, so Australian shrubs, tough, coming from all over Australia, not just Melbourne. And we prune them with coppicing, so mowing them to sort of 10 centimetres above the soil surface every couple of years to create really dense flowering plants. And the denseness of them keeps the weeds out and they're covered with flowers so they look like a beautiful meadow. And it's a novel concept. It hasn't been done anywhere in the world. So it's something we're really excited to do. And the partnership that Emma was um, speaking about is really exciting. We've been awarded an Australian Research Council grant for four years to look at getting these to work across Greater Melbourne. So we're talking about in places where we have lots of rainfall, like in the hills, the Dandenongs, but out to the west where we basically have none, contrasting soil types, and in different places. So from parks, to freeway plantings, to railway sidings. And the exciting part about this project is the amount of people that have come on board. So for planting, if you ever talk to engineers, and these two accepted, most of their time the reaction to the plant is, oh, no, it'll interfere with this, this, this and this. We don't want to put one there. Woody Meadows seems to have overcome that. And all of a sudden we have people like um, PTV wanting to put them next to train tracks. We have Vic Roads, so now the Department of Transport, wanting to put them on freeways. And they're all challenging because to get into those landscapes to ever maintain them is nearly impossible. So to get plants in those places is just the most exciting idea ever. And so I'm really excited about the project. I'm excited some of you heard about it. But um, there is a link on the website. So if you'd like to learn more, please look it up. And I'm happy to chat about Woody Meadows any time. Great, thanks, Claire. Um, and so, for um,
1: I'm going to talk about greening the pipeline now, and, and the partnership that we'll be doing um, with Woody Meadows. So, um, there is a link on the on the M Pavilion website to greening the pipeline. Um, so, how many of you have been to Science Works in Spotswood in Melbourne? Yeah, great. So, Science Works is actually the start of what's called the Main Outfall Sewer Reserve. So, Science Works is an old pumping station. And it's not very sexy or glamorous, but it used to pump all the poo from Melbourne down a 27 kilometre long pipeline to what's now known as the Western Treatment Plant. And so from Brooklyn in Melbourne's west to the Werribee River, there's a 27 kilometre long by 40 metre wide parcel of land that's known as the main outfall sewer reserve. And so this sewer was built in the 1890s in Melbourne, and it really solved a sanitation crisis at the time. Um, when uh, I don't, you you may know that Elizabeth Street is an old um, creek bed, and so when it would rain, the city of Melbourne would just become like a, a slushy pile of poo, and it was pretty stinky, and it was known as Smelbourne. And so. Um, Some very uh, clever engineers of the time, very with amazing foresight, to um, build this quite epic, epic, epic structure of its time. um, Built the main outfall sewer and the Western Treatment Plant, and so the Western Treatment Plant at Werribee is now a Ramsar protected site, which means it's a very important um, site for migratory birds. And that's partly to do with the amazing kind of rich nutrients that end up down there and <laughs> create all the kind of uh, grasslands and um, things that are down at the Western treatment plant. So, um, so the sewer was decommissioned in the 90s when um, S- Melbourne Water built the Western Trunk Sewer. And so now there's this weird parcel of land going through the western suburbs of Melbourne with um, this open, partly open brick and concrete lined channel in it and so the Federation Bike Trail was constructed um, at that time so there's got this really fantastic opportunity, we've got this bike path that goes from Brooklyn down to the Werribee River, there's not many places in Melbourne where you've got an off-road bike path that travels um, that kind of length And so it's, but unfortunately, it's been a bit of a victim of sort of um, low maintenance, and that's because it's been um, it's crown land that's um, vested in Vic Roads now, the Department of Transport, and so it's managed as a road reserve, and so that means it gets a pretty low level of maintenance. It's not anything like this park. ...or um, probably any other park that you've seen. It really is um, quite a low level of maintenance. And so it's not a very beautiful place. It's um, kind of quite ugly and a bit barren and dry. Um, but some people had a vision to transform this reserve... ...into a beautiful linear park. And so Melbourne Water, Wyndham City Council, City Westwater... ...and Vic Roads Department of Transport, are part of that... Um, Part of that collective and supported by Greening the West. And a couple of years ago, um, received state government funding to build a little 100 metre trial site along the pipeline in Williams Landing. So, Williams Landing is a really new suburb in Melbourne. It's where the old Williams RAF base was. So, some of the houses have just been there for sort of five or ten years. It's a very um, new community. And so Where that community is, the pipeline is an open channel and it's fenced on either side with really high cyclone fences. So it's kind of like having the Berlin Wall in your neighbourhood. You can't kind of get through or across. Um, And so what this project did was it covered in a section of the pipeline and put a park on top of it. And it means that people can now get through, access their neighbourhood. Um, And we're also harvesting stormwater... In the channel, so what we're we're taking the opportunity that we've got this big hole in the ground. It's a bit like a really long bathtub, and we've got access to um, a quite large catchment, a 270 hectare catchment that sort of connects into um, that pipeline. And so we're bringing water into the old sewer and treating it in reed beds. So um, Reed beds are really fantastic in that the microbes that are on the reeds um, eat up anything like dog poo nasties and they kind of clean up all the water so that it means that we can use it to then do subsurface irrigation of the um, the lawn and the garden beds. So we've got this little 100 metre beautiful green oasis that's in the middle of what is quite a dry area there and it's been really fantastic in bringing the community together so the local community have um, built a community garden alongside the pipeline there and um, it's been fantastic in that sense of building resilience in the community by forming community connections and that community group have also been really active in planting trees along the moss Reserve. so we um, as part of the one Million Tree Project for Greening the West, we planted um, 40,000 trees in the Moss Reserve and about 10,000 of those were planted by community groups and that's really important partnership. So it actually it's, takes um, more time, more work and more money to plant the trees with community groups and look after them. Um, but the benefits of doing that... Uh, just kind of flow on. They have really flow on benefits in the community, both in terms of bringing people together and then also in just kind of appreciating and understanding the value of trees that gets passed on by those people who participate in those activities. So that's why we do it. And our community are really keen and really want to get involved in tree planting. So we really support and encourage them to um, participate in that. Um, And so, Greening the Pipeline is, um, we've just done a master plan that's called the Zone 5 Master Plan. So, um, 27 kilometres is a pretty long distance, so we've sort of divided the land up into nine sections of where it passes through different um, parcels of land. And the Zone 5 section is where it passes through new residential area in Truganina, and it backs onto a community centre and a primary school and Wyndham open space. And then it also travels through quite dense, new um, new suburban area as well. And so we are, we have just embarked on a, a big stormwater harvesting project. So part of what we, um, we recognise within Wyndham, we have very, very low rainfall. So sort of 400 to 500 mils. And so if we want to have any green space, any green lawn, any um, tree canopy, we need to irrigate. So... Um, We have um, a partnership with City West Water through their um, Stormwater Harvesting Partnership Fund to um, build a 22-megalitre stormwater harvesting system within the Moss Channel. Um, So we'll be starting construction on that um, in uh, around August this year, which is really exciting. We're just doing the detailed design process of that at the moment. Um, and then that's going to provide um, a sustainable water source to irrigate both the sports field that's currently being irrigated with potable water um, as well as irrigate new green spaces that we'll plant along the Moss Reserve. And so what, we're, what, what our you know, aim is in doing that is that we're creating this really beautiful space. We're going to be inviting, encouraging people to come into that space to ride their bikes to walk, to access the train station and, you know, all of those things will have a flow-on effect into um, our resilience as a community, you know, things like make so that we're less reliant on cars um, in, in the western suburbs, or are hugely reliant on cars um, and just encouraging people to get out and recreate and um, have physical exercise, all of those things which we know that people in the west aren't doing enough of and that we know that people need beautiful spaces to be in to be able to, um, to do that, to be encouraged to get out.
3: Can I make a comment on that? Sure. I think um, for those of you that probably, I don't know, live, work, study in the city of Melbourne, some of these projects you think, oh yeah, whatever, you're putting in some parks out west. But actually doing anything at scale in those areas where we're talking about sprawling suburbs with lots and lots of people living in them, it costs a lot of money and the income of those councils isn't very big. So councils like the city of Melbourne, it's really dense in a small area of land. So for all of their parks, they've got a lot of money that they can spend on them. But out west, it's challenging to do beautiful things and get quality landscapes because the, the money to use has to be spread so thin over quite big amounts of land. So, I just want to say it is a very exciting project.
2: I'll support that and I think we should all acknowledge that the native plants of the Western Plains, for most of it, particularly in Wyndham, are rocks, <laughs> Chilean needle grass and thistles, <laughs> with the occasional boxhorn thrown in if you need a bit of shade. It's, it's a really, really, really tough environment.
1: Great, thank you. So, so one of the things, that, that's part of the reason that we're looking at Woody Meadows project. It's a really exciting project that we um, are partnering on. And so some of that's also to do with, I guess, kind of the maintenance stuff with council, that this isn't council land, that for Wyndham to take on the maintenance of it, and it's really clear that there's fantastic benefits for the community in doing this, and that's what the role of local government is. Um, So so the benefits um, that our community will receive from doing this work are fantastic, but we also need to balance that with maintenance. So that's why we're looking at really resilient landscapes um, that are going to require low maintenance, but still be beautiful. um, And and then also, you know, I guess the thing that Claire touched on before is the thing about... um, uh, easements and um, places where you can't plant a tree. It's been it's been a really challenging project for me in that um, you know I came in with these big expectations to plant loads of trees along this reserve, and you look you stand there and you think yeah there's lots of space there to plant trees, but then you come across oh we can't plant within three meters of that and we can't plant within five meters of that and you can't plant there and you can't plant there and it ends up being this tiny little narrow strip where you can actually plant a tree. And so that's where we think, you know, well, urban forestry, it's not just about the trees, it's about everything else. It's about the soil, it's about the grasses, it's about the shrubs, it's about, you know, the whole big picture of what makes an urban forest. Um, So... let's see um has anyone got you know, i might throw it to, to you guys and see if you've got any questions or anything that you'd like to pick our brains on while we're up here before we wrap up yes i've just
7: moved out west moved congratulations <laughs> thank you um i've just moved out west i have moved to west footscray and i've i've always lived on the east side of melbourne And I'm getting used to the industrial estates which surround me. Um, And there's a lot lot of impermeable surfaces, um, but there's also a lot of opportunities for planting um, nature strips. How do we get industrial estates to buy into sort of landscaping and into urban... Forest
1: or woody meadows. Yeah, that's such that's such a great question. I mean, I, I guess I, I'm not a planner, but I do know that in our planning schemes that uh, we have different um, regulations for industrial areas than we do for residential areas. But even still, within the industrial areas, the um, the nature strips are still council owned. So I guess it's still you know, looking at what role your local council can play in that um, in in um, greening those nature strips, if that's what, what, what it is that you're looking at.
2: I'll, I'll jump in. Now yeah. I, I think we have to do something and if we're dealing in industrial areas in, with commercial businesses, we, we need to drive them towards a financial outcome. And... First of all we need to make them understand that, That, um, and at frank admission, I build some of these landscapes and maintain them. And our biggest problem is people parking stuff on them, dumping stuff on them. So there is a clear role for, for local government in regulation around saying that's part of the landscape, do something about it. But at the moment the most common solution is a grass surface like that. And it's probably relatively expensive and relatively difficult to maintain mowing it and all the rest of it. And a woody meadow in those areas may present an opportunity to to change people's people's minds. I know um, we don't we we've never been as um, fancy enough to call it a woody meadow, but certainly on lots of road projects, we we steer people towards a planting pallet made up of indigenous shrubs for a whole lot of reasons. One, it's it's cheaper to install and it's less maintenance input down the track and. To, to put it into perspective, why do people care about what stuff costs to, to maintain? Um, typically, and, and in, a, in, a, in a large freeway project, 25% of the construction cost is expended in the first two years after it was built maintaining it, and every year after that, you're spending 5 to 10% maintaining it. So your maintenance... Every 10 years, you're effectively replacing the thing um, through your maintenance investment. So if you can keep your capital costs down... And then push your maintenance cost down even further. You really will get traction with people because it's a real. It's not just a great environmental outcome. It's a really good effort and e- e- economic outcome for something which, unfortunately, in this game, you've got to talk the language that people engage with. And the reality is that in, for many cases, it, it's a, it's a, it's a regulatory or a financial obligation. So I think there's good opportunity for for that style of approach across large areas in Melbourne.
6: One of the issues I have is, like, you go you go around some of the urban landscapes in Melbourne and they've got really beautiful grasses, you know, aesthetically um, attractive, resilient, um, native even. But then people go to Bunnings to buy these sort of things and they're, like, 15 to $30 for a punnet and really inaccessible. But those things would be ideal for everyone to be planting everywhere. So... Have you have you taken any initiatives to make uh, the sort of products that you're harvesting um, to uh, to make it mainstream at all, such that people are planting these normally and maybe with some instructions about how to plant them? Because that's where I go <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, so uh, c-
2: certainly trying to get a product in the mindset of Bunnings is a is a is a real is a real challenge um but there are lots of people out there trying them and 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 we it's not a market we work in particularly but we grow plants that end up in that market but i accept it's the 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 cost at um the cost at the at the at the checkout will always have 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 an influence and but you know with i think whether you're buying um pansies or native australian native grass you're still paying 15 bucks a it so so hopefully we can it is a lot of money i get that and 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 but, and that's why I suspect many people put down turf, um, because they get what they want. They also give their kids a nice place to play and all the rest of it. Again, I've got turf in my front garden because that's what the kids play. And I, I look forward to the day when I replace it with a garden. But for the time being, it does. It is. It is an important part of the landscape. And and hopefully people are putting in trees and other things which aren't a are relatively inexpensive. That walks out the door for less than three bucks. Um, <laughs> you can. You can, you can put them in and you'll have a tree for, for, for as long as you want. Yeah.
3: And I think that speaks to a larger issue, actually. It's informing people about good choices. I mean, you know, they could do whatever they want in their life, but they should plant the right plant, shouldn't they? <laughs> so, you know, it's often hard. And, I mean, my husband gets angry with me every time we go to Bunnings, and I do go to Bunnings. It's kind of... Horticulturalists always frown at you when you say you go to Bunnings, but I do... Because I end up helping about five people while I'm there because they're standing there with a blank look on their face going, which plant do I pick and or how do I do this? And I'll say, oh, no, don't do that, do this. But it's true. We need much more of that kind of knowledge. And websites are getting better and there are some good guides. But you could foolproof, like, developments. You could give a how-to guide for a cottage garden or whatever they call it these days. Which, uh, well, uh, for a woody meadow plug, that's what we're doing. So we're creating recipes. So if you don't know what you're doing or you're not that into knowing what you're doing, you can just follow what you're told.
2: <laughs> but I think that is going to be a challenge for this strategy and for Greening the West. Is we're, we are, we've, we've, once we've filled all the parks, but we've taken up a significant amount of the low-hanging fruit in the parks. And now we're going to be moving into the front and backyards of people in, in the west of Melbourne as a trial and the next thing. That's going to be a real challenge, but that's what's going to take to deliver a truly resilient Melbourne is to have a, a, a tree cover across all of Melbourne, not just the public open space.
0: Um, I have two questions. One is about the value of shrubbery for small birds, because um, I'm interested in sm- bringing native small birds back somehow from somewhere, I'm not sure where we're going to get them. But, um, you know, and it is an easy-to-lose battle. We've kind of lost it with all this kind of open-treed area that all the gregarious species love. But uh, so I'm curious about the value of shrubs and whether, for example, the woody meadow is going to have value for small birds. Uh, And I'm also interested in how much value native trees or... uh, Non, non-native trees and other levels of species have for native fauna and to what extent we should st- continue to push for natives wherever possible or yeah
3: well i'll go first <laughs> so in terms of the woody meadow it's native but it's not indigenous so they're plants from all over australia And typically we would have at least 21 different species in the mix. So we've got high diversity, which gives us our resilience. That's one of the main reasons to do it. You've got more insurance there. If something doesn't like it and dies, you've got other things there that thrive. We don't know exactly what it will do for diversity because we've never measured it. But we've had flowers all year round on something, at least one thing, and often on multiple things. Through the coppicing, we extend the number of flowers. So instead of just having one flowering stalk, we might have 10 on something like this when we coppiced it. So that's a win. Um, And I was reading something from America um, on this the other day where they were talking about uh, woody plantings in freeways that they hedge and looking at connectivity for um, birds and small mammals. And they found that it had a great value for preserving those faunal groups um so they were quite important but it was also interesting because the same articles talked about the dangers of having moose and things like that close to freeways because you create that diversity so that's always a balance and i'll let the others have a go at the native indigenous thing and i'll give my two cents worth at the end
2: (laughs) i'll jump off the cliff first um I, i i i think bringing um the driving objective of greening the West was getting that tree canopy cover to create the shade to, to create the cooling. And, and, I, and I think in any program, um, particularly the the 20 million trees program, they were they were limited in their funding and what they could do. So they were focused on tall trees and tall shrubs to, to get that funding. Um, so in some respects they've not had the financial resources to do that to date. But I know there's a there's a genuine willingness and passion. To use the framework of the planting, and I spoke about tall trees. Um, we we did some work um, with Brimbank in one of their areas last year. Of there's there's holes in that because not everything survived. So we went in and we put shrubs and grasses into the holes in that where there'd been fatalities, and that is a is a really good opportunity to to give those shrubs the opportunity of a bit of protection, and and then to put some diversity back into the planting. So I think. I think we'll see that in the West is that that there'll be um, an opportunity to build the, the the diversity of those of those of those plantings um, and and go there. Um, to your second question about um, native versus um, introduced or overseas trees, I think there's a role for any tree. And we look out again. We look behind us. I think that's a really good example of a of a of a landscape that's that's beautiful and 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 has got lots of different trees in it. Um, and I think it's going to be a, an approach of, of, of horses for courses. But again, being mindful of what the climate might be like in 50 years' time, in terms of what we what we choose now, I suspect some of the European stuff we've got out there now, or the North American stuff out there, won't like what what it's got coming. So I think I think there's, uh, every tree is a good tree, in my opinion. And as they always say, the best day to plant a tree was yesterday, today's the second best day, so let's let's keep putting trees in the ground and we'll, we'll, we'll have a good outcome. Did that answer your question?
1: Yeah, great. I'll just add um, a little bit to that. So the, the Moss Reserve um, has been identified in Wyndham city forest and habitat strategy as a really important um, habitat corridor. And so when we were looking at our tree selections, we chose from um, a palette of sort of 30 different tree species and we chose trees that flower at different times of the year and really mix them up. So we weren't going for like an avenue of this thing or an avenue of that thing. We're going for really mixed plantings and that's sort of recognising that the way that those little birds kind of move along is they hop from one plant to the other and they'll hop from what's flowering to the next thing that's flowering. So we sort of, you know, I guess one of the things that we really focused on was a really good mix and looking at things that flower at different times of the year. And I guess that goes for both trees and for woody meadows as well.
3: And I think, lastly, I think we've got to be really careful about getting into this native-only territory. And it's a a big thing, and I would say especially in Melbourne. Um, I guess there's lots of urban ecologists in Melbourne, so there's a very big bias towards um, native-only. I think we've got to come back to what the insect or the bird actually needs and wants. And for some of them, sure, it'll be some specific plant species that is indigenous and doesn't grow anywhere else but for others they might be quite happy with a range of different things and it's more about flowering resources or um, having rough bark to nest in or whatever it is so I think we should bring it back to that but also think okay not every plant has to do everything we can plant some trees just for their shade just for cooling And other plants, we concentrate on habitat values, but not try and think that everything can be everything. Because then it's like house paint, we get beige.
1: (laughs) Great. Are there any more questions before we wrap up? Yep, one more. Great, a couple more.
5: Um, Do you have any strategies where you said that you can't plant trees? So if you really need to get that shade to start changing the climate and allow for other species to survive, that they, they need the shade. So if you any strategies when you can't actually, you have the physical land to plant a tree, like along the easement. Uh, I
1: don't think I quite understand the question. You, can you, do you,
2: do you I might have a crack. I, I, I think where you can't get a tree in the ground f- for services or whatever, that's when we could certainly talk to on-structure planting um, green roofs and that sort of stuff. So there's always a way to get um, something green in a space. It, it then comes down to the the owner's commitment, the project owner's commitment to make it happen because once you move out of a soil-based system into a on-structure system, you're, you're doubling, tripling, quadrupling costs. So th- it, is, it does take a big commitment. But there's always a solution to get a plant Sustainable in in every situation.
1: Is that what you
5: were getting to? Specifically, um, specifically shade. Yeah. So if you put a plant on a wall, for example, that's not necessarily going to shade anyone, and and shade to make the space comfortable for humans and birds or or whoever need. Um, that that shade is I mean, it's a marker of success. It's a real um, goal that most councils are striving for. Mm-hmm. So when you physically cannot plant a tree, Um, have there been discussions of other strategies to use?
1: Yeah, so I guess along the the, um, Greening the Pipeline project we've looked at um, in our Landscape Master Plan creating um, arbours to grow um, like vines and creepers and things up so that we get that shading effect. And so that kind of seems really reasonable to me. Our um, parks maintenance guys aren't quite so keen on the idea and I think it's more just because we don't have a lot of that stuff in the West and so part of it's going to be about we're looking at some trial landscapes and we call them trial and test and pilot because then that means that people are a bit more, you know, like, yeah, okay, we'll put this in and we'll see how it works over a period of time and then... um, you know, sort of look at what the actual costs are for doing that, you know, like how much extra maintenance is it? Is it unsafe because people might climb up it? You know, so there's all those kind of considerations that start to come into play when you're building things in the public realm. But, yeah, we are looking at alternative um, shade-type structures so that we can get that in in the places where we can't plant trees.
3: And within the city, the City of Melbourne have got a great um, program called Greening Laneways... And they've got a whole heap of documents around that that are quite interesting read about how you get plants in areas where you can't dig a hole and put a plant and how you can grow them over structures. Great. Did you have a question before we...
1: Yep. Yeah.
7: Sorry about that. Um, I, I'm doing a project with the Architecture Institute and it's... A, it's Indigenous ecosystem corridors and nodes, sort of an international project, we're trying to bring it here. So I'm asking the question, what is it that architects can do to integrate biodiversity into the built environment and and to strengthen like the, the projects that you've talked about, you know, are creating some of those corridors. How do we then um, Spread those through the built environment.
1: Wow, that's a big question. That's the that's, the that's to know. yeah, great. I, I know I, it's huge. Yeah, well, <laughs> look, I guess I, with my um, water engineering hat on, I just kind of go to look at what opportunities there are for you know harvesting water of structures, and how do we um, better integrate that. Um, Storage and all of that into our existing structures. How are we storing the water so that it can be used for, you know, if it's a green roof that we know requires more water and more maintenance? Has um, is, uh, is, is anyone here got in the audience like to have a, have a go at that? It's a pretty big question. It's great. I think if we had another hour, I'd love to unpack that.
2: <laughs> I, I think we need to push it really hard... Into the education space, so that we have professionals coming out that that's what they want to be doing, and that's every project they look at from a design perspective. They're thinking of the horticultural element. So, how do you get that again? How do you get the, the new architects coming through with a with a vision and a and a and a passion for plants? And and how do they make that make that happen? Because it's not always about Finishes, form, and 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 all the things that you get with with great architecture, but plants should be a key part of that. So I think it it's it's a it's a long term project of working with w- from the education up. There, like, political, uh,
4: incentive or laws that Can be implemented so that the architects would have to take that in account in the same way they take in account all sorts of other things. Because, I mean, there are proper laws that have been implemented here in this country in the last few years about how you have to build. And uh, I'm foreign, and so I looked at all these different aspects with my perspective of how we have been building overseas uh, in the past. And uh, there is a a really structural uh, overseeing of the law in anything that is done now. So if it is something that we have to take in account, because in the future, there is no way we can address all this planting and everything without having foreseen other plants or a different way of of, uh, uh, addressing these problems. Uh, And and you are the people who know about that. You, You have to step up and tell them. I, I, I mean, it's just like, no, I think he did right. It's just like you can't just think that you're doing right by just telling a few people, um, because if you are knowledgeable about this, they need to understand it. Because the money and the political and the economical is the one that strives.
2: Without a shadow of doubt. But I think I think Resilient Melbourne, which has just been launched, provides a framework to to precipitate that conversation and. And to demonstrate clearly the consequences of do nothing, and the, the inertia in this country around adaptation for the future climate scenarios is, is 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 very very great. And we've resilient Melbourne is just a, is just a great opportunity to to clearly detail the consequences of doing nothing, the opportunities that can be realised if we do do something, and provide some really sound insight into what you can do and I can guarantee that coming out of um, the Resilient Melbourne Strategy will be a, a drive to regulatory frameworks, to planning s- schemes and all that sort of stuff which you know, in some respects Melbourne leads the world in water management in that space and I, I think um, the Melbourne City Council and, I, and I, I'm getting a sense that councils that are growing, it's growing out around Melbourne want to lead in that space in in the green space as well. We're not a Vancouver, but I think we have aspirations of getting there, of, of, of fully integrating the, the green and living into all of our built form. So, yet again, be patient. Um, we've got the strategy in place, and I, but I think it'll come, but it takes everybody to, to, to do it.
3: Mm. And I think we're on the cusp. I don't think we're very far away from big change in terms of regulatory frameworks around green buildings. I think we're really close. And the other thing is that trees are leading the way with this. So green roofs, green walls, blah, 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 that'll all come later. But the trees, nearly every council that I talk with, and admittedly they're probably the more progressive ones, they all have an urban forester now. None of them would have ever, ever had a tree plan or someone thinking about the future forest in all of these suburbs. And we're even talking about really traditional suburbs where they have lots of oaks and elms. They're now thinking, oh, well, we'll start planting the jacarandas and the other trees that we think will be ripe for 20 years' time. And so we're on that cusp. Yeah, great, thank you. I
1: think that's a really great um, point to kind of wrap up on so that, you know, recognising that living Melbourne, which is what we're, we've come here to talk about, is less than a year old. You know, and it's been endorsed by over 40 um, local governments and, and state agencies. So that's a really huge achievement. It means that it's got this really high level CEO and councillor support that people are saying, yes, we've signed up to this. It's got over 100 actions in it. And, and it aligns with a whole lot of council policies and strategies around um, urban forest strategies so you know urban forest strategies are still pretty new in local government you know they're less than 10 years old so it's we, we are you know about to see a whole lot of change it's early days yet and it's probably going to feel a little bit slow to start with but it's something that involves everyone it's not just people like us who are at the you know coal face of that that work but it's about you know people taking it up in their own backyards, deciding to plant a tree on their nature strip instead of have it as a car space. Plant the trees for the birds, you know, all of that. Thank you, beautiful magpie. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I guess so, I, I think, you know, I guess the key message that I'd like to leave you with is that Living Melbourne is a strategy that connects us all. It's not just for the politicians and the state agencies. It's for the people It's for the trees, it's for the planet, it's something that goes globally and it's something that connects us all through the air that we breathe which is the out-breath of nature. So thank you. (laughs) You You're
0: listening to an Empavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.empavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.